I'm Mark Riss and welcome to my Curious Ghosts and Folklore podcast where in each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject and in this episode I'll be looking at quite a, a dark story called The Wraith of a Murderer Stalks Abroad. This is a ghost story about a murderer who came back to haunt his former property and his former neighbours. Now, before I start delving into the archives and telling you all about this story, I would like to make a very quick disclaimer at the start here, because as regular listeners will know, I, I like to have a laugh and a joke on this podcast. I like to mess about. I like to tell stories that are sometimes silly, sometimes scary, sometimes real, sometimes just rubbish off the top of my head. But I never take things too seriously if I can help it. Now, with a story of this nature, it's worth being clear that it does involve a murderer. It does involve a victim. And this is a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'll be, I'll be honest. I mean, I know there are there is a fascination about these subjects out there. There are a million and one podcasts about these grisly crimes. It's not really my thing. I like to look at the more supernatural, paranormal side of it than the, the, the hardcore crime side of it. But for the purposes of this episode, I am going to have to combine the two. We are going to have to combine the fantastical ghost story with the grim and gritty crime story. And so for this episode, and it, it is a one-off, I promise you, but for this episode, I am just going to play it straight. I do not in any way, shape or form want to disrespect any memories or anything like that. So this is going to be my, if you could see me, this is my straight face. We're going to play this one straight, okay? And then next episode, next episode, I promise, is going to be the the funniest episode ever. Uh, I, I, got, I don't know what it's going to be yet. I haven't thought that far. But I promise you, whatever it is, the next episode is going to be fun. But for now, it is going to be anything but fun. This story, as with a lot of the stories I write about in my books and talk about on this podcast, has been put together from newspaper reports, which were contemporary first-hand accounts at the time. And this tale begins in 1898 in Swansea, in Tower. And when this story first broke, the reporter covering it wrote, and I quote, a terrible murder was committed in Powell Street, Swansea. Now, as I mentioned, I am quite sensitive when it comes to talking about these things. I also try my best to avoid naming locations where this might still have an effect. But luckily, for the purposes of this story, those houses in Powell Street 
have all been demolished since, so I am not talking about any house which still exists out there. Powell Street still exists, and I believe there are buildings and things there. But the houses which were involved in this story are long gone. Now, back to that report. The journalist mentioned there'd been a murder, and there were more details revealed as well. And I'd like to read a description from one of the newspapers covering it at the time from the South Wales Daily Post, which is now known as the South Wales Evening Post, who are, who are based in Swansea. And it begins like this. Henry O'Neill, alias Price, a seaman whose steps had been dogged by persistent misfortune, slaughtered his young wife in a most brutal fashion. Whilst in bed together, he suddenly became frenzied and inflicted innumerable stabs upon her almost any one of which would have been sufficient to cause death. Subsequently, O'Neill plunged into the canal close by and put an end to his own existence. So, to sum that up very quickly, O'Neill was living in Swansea, working in Swansea. One night he lost it, he killed his wife. Soon after, he took his own life by throwing himself into the canal. Now, the canal might not be that familiar to people nowadays, but certainly at the time, it was a very important part of life in the city, which was a town back then. But when Swansea was Copperopolis, one of the world's largest producers of copper, the canal was an important part of it. And nowadays, going off on a on a quick tangent, but it's worth noting that there is a charity running boat tours on the canal nowadays. They do a wonderful job if you ever get the chance. And it goes up to where the Liberty Stadium is now, Swansea City Football Club's stadium. And it's right next to that where the whole Copperworks, Copperopolis redevelopment site is. It's where the Havard, Havard Morver Copperworks are and where these, these sort of grade two listed buildings are being transformed now into visitor centres and things. But anyway, that's the crime side of it covered. And this story didn't really drag on too long in the press because it, it pretty much was an open and shut case. They knew who did it. He killed himself straight afterwards. And it was just a tragic tragic event and under normal circumstances i imagine that would would be the end of that that horrible story now it was 12 months later a year after these events took place so in 1899 the last year of the 19th century attention was focused back on that house and that is because it did not sit empty after the whole affair was was wrapped up it was reoccupied, and some sense of normality returned to Powell Street. But this is, of course, a ghosts and folklore podcast, and we are not going to just leave things there, because after that year had passed, strange things started happening in and around the house. The people of Powell Street were, according to the press, much perturbed by strange happenings. Now, the occupant, Mrs. Williams, was said to be sceptical of some of the strange claims people were making about what was going on after dark on the street. And 
what I'd like to do is to read to you a paragraph from one of the reports and what people were claiming was happening. And it was said, several of the residents affirm they have seen O'Neill's ghost. His spirit walks at night in the garden. The result is that the folk living on that side of Powell Street are in a terrible state of fright. As soon as the shades of nightfall, the back doors are locked, bolted and barred, and the women and children will not go out into the yards. And yes, it it feels like I mention this on every single episode, but yet again, in the Victorian age, it was the children and the women who were too scared to go out into the yard. But back to the story, his ghost was said to be haunting his former premises, and as a result, the women and children of Powell Street were too scared to go out into their yards. Now, for those people who claim to have actually seen O'Neill's ghost, part of the problem we have with these kind of stories is that even if they have genuinely seen something ghostly in, in, in the shape or form of a shadow or something, maybe... How do they know it's O'Neill? We get this a lot, especially in places with historical connections like a castle or something, where if you know a famous king or a queen once lived there, then anything slightly unusual is automatically assumed to be this famous person. It could be nothing, it could be a little gust of wind, but it must have been Henry VIII or, or wherever it is that you are. But in this case, there seems to be more... Reliable evidence, shall we say. There was one woman who claims she was reading downstairs late at night when she saw O'Neill peering in at her through the window. She claims to have seen his face. So not a feeling, not a shadow, not that little gust of wind. She saw his face peering in through the window. And so if we take her word for it, That is one confirmed sighting. And I should add that as a result of seeing that face, she quickly joined her husband between the sheets. A second woman, who is clearly much braver than we were led to be believed that these women were too scared to go out after dark, she was outside after dark and she was there to get the washing in. She was taking the clothes off the line when, and I'm quoting, two clammy hands were laid on her face and she was just in time to see O'Neill's spirit vanish into thin air. So that's lady number two who claims to have had a positive identification that yes, it was O'Neill's spirit. Now, the other witnesses, and sadly, all the report says is they were many Now, whether that's many two or three, whether that's many 500, I don't know. But there were many, apparently, who saw him walking restlessly about the garden. And he's not just walking randomly about the garden. By all accounts, he always seems to make for a particular corner where he has been sighted. And there is a detail here. And it would be really useful to know where this bit of information came from, whether it was an actual part of the police report, whether it was common knowledge between the locals, if so, or maybe it originated with the locals. We don't know, but by all accounts, 
after he murdered his wife in that house, he then went outside and attempted to bury the evidence, or he did bury the evidence. He buried her clothing in this corner that the people claim his ghost made a beeline for. And like I said, the reports don't make it clear whether or not these clothes were buried there or how the locals knew, but certainly that was their explanation for his ghost being seen in that particular spot. Now, the reporter covering this story did indeed speak to Mrs. Williams, who was living there, and as mentioned, she was sceptical. And, to quote, she laughed at the fears of her neighbours at first. But when she was told of these later sightings, now, to quote again, she does not know what to make of it. And she did say that a few days ago, she dug up her garden so as to have a soft surface. But, sure enough, the next morning, footsteps were visible leading to the fateful spot in the corner. So we could say that, again, if we take her word for it, somebody or something was indeed walking to that corner. But if it's leaving footsteps behind, could this possibly suggest that the culprit is not necessarily paranormal in nature. Now, there's there's a lot of ifs and buts and maybes here, but if you do believe in ghosts, do you believe they can leave physical prints behind like footprints? If not, what was creating them? Could it possibly be somebody playing a trick on Mrs. Williams. We don't know. I guess we'll never know. And this is going to be one of those ghost stories which does end, I'm afraid, with something of a cliffhanger. And this happens to me a lot when I'm researching these old ghost stories. A lot of them do not have endings. They're not wrapped up nicely. And believe it or not, I actually think that's a really good thing, and bear with me on this one, but when you find stories like this, which are not wrapped up nicely at the end, that shows they are real stories. This is not a work of gothic fiction, which has been written as entertainment for people to read and listen to and to enjoy. This is a real story, and we can only look back at what was reported. And if it was never solved, it was never solved, because it really happened. There is no final chapter to this story. There is no fin, the end, written to tie things up. This, in theory, is still ongoing. This was not solved in the Victorian age, and it has not been solved in the centuries which have passed. That is the beauty, and that is the frustration of real-life stories, and this is a real-life story. But nevertheless, the locals were determined to get to the bottom of things, and so they decided to set up a watch. Now, to do this, they chose three of the bravest men in the street, three brave Victorian men, and while it doesn't specify how many times they sat and watched and waited, it does say that on one particular night, they stayed up all night waiting for this ghost, but, and I'll quote, they failed to lay the ghost by the heels. 
as a result, the people of Powell Street were said to be in a terrible state of fright. And, and I'm quoting again, one little boy who saw the apparition has been rendered seriously ill. Now, at this point, there is closure of sorts to this story. And I, I don't want to go off on a rant on this episode. This isn't the time and place. I'll save my ranting for, for another day. But one big frustration that I have with a lot of Victorian reports of these nature, and, and it's not just the Victorians, but this is a Victorian story, so I'm focusing on them for this one. But the reporters covering these cases often did so with their tongue in their cheek and approached the subject like it was all one big joke. Which, of course, they are perfectly entitled to do, and some some of these stories are a little bit far-fetched, shall we say. But the problem is that if they're one big joke, why put them out there in the first place? If you don't want people to read and believe these stories, don't print them to begin with. And if you are going to print them, then don't condescend people afterwards. But anyway, that is that is a rant for another day. But nevertheless, that does lead me up to the closure of sorts to this story. In the last report I could find about this story, which effectively does put a full stop at the end of it. It draws a line under the whole sorry affair. The publication's advice to the locals who might be fearful of the ghost was, and I'll quote, the people living in the street should bring a little common sense to bear on the subject. So this is the newspaper's chance to say, look, enough is enough. We, we do not think there is anything paranormal going on here. Please just let it lie. And with that, so ends the story of the wraith of a murderer who stalks abroad. And that means we've reached the point in the episode where I like to turn the spotlight on you instead and ask, what do you think about all of that? Do you have any thoughts, any theories on what might or might not have been going on in Swansea at the end of the 19th century. Have you heard of similar stories elsewhere in, in the world or similar attitudes to how people approach these stories? If so, it's always great to hear from people. Uh, the quickest way to track me down is through the website, but I'm also on all of the main social media channels. So if you wanted to send me a message or anything on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, please do. And as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, please consider hitting the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode again. And I promise you that from next week, things are going to start getting a little bit happier again. They are not all grisly, horrible stories like this one. And in fact, next week, it's probably going to be fairies or something, something so incredibly uplifting, it'll make you sick. But I haven't thought that far ahead yet. I don't know. I'll, I'll think of something suitable. Or again, if you have any thoughts, drop me a message. Also, I've got a little announcement to make. I haven't spoken about this elsewhere yet. This is an exclusive. And that is, I was hoping to launch my new book, Paranormal Wales, this Halloween with an event somewhere. Now, the book was originally supposed to be launched in March. And as we now know, March was not a good month to launch a book because it was in March that our 
our lives changed, that our world fell apart. And I was hoping, really hoping, that by Halloween time, things might have improved to the point where I could do a book launch. Now, sadly, that that is not going to happen. I have accepted defeat. But what I am going to do instead is to do a book launch on this podcast. And, of course, that does mean that all of my friends from all over the world can now join me for this book launch. Because if it was in some some little place in rainy old Wales, then you might have trouble getting here from America or Canada or Italy or wherever it is you're tuning in from. But now we can all get together for this book launch. And the episode on October the 29th, Two days before the big day, two days before All Hallows' Eve, Norse Kalangayev, our Halloween party on this podcast, I will be launching Paranormal Whales on this podcast with a special episode all about my favourite ghost stories, Wales' most haunted places, in inverted commas there, because of course you can never say what the most haunted places are. And I will also, just like a normal book launch, I will be doing a Q&A session at the end. So if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask me about the book, about paranormal whales or just anything in general i'll include as many as i can well actually i'll I'll include all of them assuming they're not uh, rude or offensive or anything as long as i can say them aloud i'll include them on this episode so again get in touch with me either by email through the website or on social media on twitter on instagram or facebook and i will include as many as i can on the halloween special of this podcast and I've also arranged with a with a top secret location for now, but because th- this will not be a physical book launch, if, if, if that's the right word, where I can sign copies and shake hands and all that stuff, what I will be doing is dropping off a pile of signed books at a certain location where you will be able to order copies from or pop in and pick up copies from, but more on that next episode. But for now, it just leaves me to say... Thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am Grando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore from Wales podcast. It's the best. It's the beautiful. It's the only Ghosts and Folklore from Wales to the world podcast. No star. <laughs> <laughs>